This week and next, we're going to be looking at Psalm 68, which is about God like a shepherd leading his people. What a fitting psalm to uh, sing, or him to sing as we prepare. I invite you to remain standing and turn with me first, if you will, to Mark chapter 12. Just going to read a few verses there. If you can put a finger in Psalm 68, that's going to be our main passage this morning. Uh, But first, Mark chapter 12, verses 41 through 44, probably a familiar passage uh, to many. If you're using one of the church's Bibles, you'll find that starting on page 481. Let us hear God's word. Speaking of Jesus, it says, And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people putting in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Now turn with me to Psalm 68. Uh, we're going to read the, the first 14 verses, uh, including the superscription. Uh, if you're using one of the church's Bibles, you'll find that on page I think I had those page numbers backwards, didn't I? Is that one on 481? Yeah, that's on 481. Uh, Again, this is God's word. To the choir master, a psalm of David, a song. And God shall arise. All his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad, and they shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. Sing to God, sing praises to His name. Lift up a song to Him who rides through the deserts. His name is Yahweh, exult before Him. Father of the fatherless and protector of the widows, is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. O God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain, Before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel, reign in abundance, O God, you shed abroad. You restored your inheritance as it languished. Your flock found a dwelling in it. In your goodness, O God, you provided for the needy. The Lord gives the word. The women who announce the news are a great host. The kings of armies flee, they flee, they flee. The women at home divide the spoil, though you men lie among the sheepfolds. The wings of a dove covered with silver, its pinions with shimmering gold. When the Almighty scatters kings there, let snow fall on Solomon. So ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but this word is eternal. 
Let us pray that God would open it to us this morning. Our most gracious Lord, our hearts are prone to wander. Our minds are slow to understand. We are not by nature, by birth, people of your word. And so we ask that you would be among us, that you would open our hearts, that you would open our minds, and that you would give us ears to hear your most holy truth, faith to receive it, and strength to live according to it, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I love that statement in 2 Corinthians. We walk by faith, not by sight. And what it means is that Christians must understand that there is more to reality than can be experienced by the five senses, what can be seen and tasted and touched, smelled, heard. For everyone else, that's all there is. If it's not available to the senses, it does not exist. But Christians, they know that God is at work in ways that are not perceivable to the five senses. And often, that God is at work in ways directly opposed to how the world works. In the world, the powerful are the victors. With God, it is the meek who survive. In the world, the beautiful, the popular, wield influence. With God, it is the outcast who gain his attention and his love. And that means there are more than one way to judge things. It means that some of the poorest people in this world are actually the wealthiest among us. They are heirs of heaven. And some of the richest people are more impoverished than they could ever imagine. God, our God, does not play by the world's rules. And so the Bible says things like, whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. This is God's way. He opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And that means, ultimately, it is better to be rich than I'm sorry, it's better to be poor than rich. Yeah, we're all seeing if we can follow the train of thought here, right? It's better to be weak than strong, afflicted than celebrated. To be a widow, to be an orphan. And that's one of the messages of Psalm 68. It's a beautiful psalm. It tells this grand sweeping, uh, almost uh, epic uh, story of God on the march from Sinai uh, to taking up his throne in the temple in the promised land and bringing his people with him. And, And there's a lot here. And I 
didn't want to try to cover it all in one week. I didn't want to rush it. So I'm going to take two weeks to look at the psalm, this week and next. And this week I want to meditate on, on how God describes his people whom he rescues from Egypt, from slavery in Egypt. He calls them widows and orphans. And that might sound derogatory, but it's not. Because here's the message of of Psalm 68. In God's eyes, we are all widows and orphans. But that's okay. Because God cares for and he rescues widows and orphans. As we look at the first half of this psalm, I want to see three things this morning. First, God cares for widows and orphans. Second, we are all widows and orphans. And finally, I want to see how far from meaning that, uh, that we have nothing to offer, that this actually frees us to serve others in a way that brings delight to our God. When we understand our poverty, we are freed up to serve in ways we never imagined. That's what I want to look at uh, from Psalm 68 this morning. I think it can be hard when we read a passage like this in our modern context to understand just how devastating it would have been to be a widow in the ancient world. Today we have all sorts of safety nets. We have life insurance policies. We have state-funded welfare. Uh, And that's not to mention just the absolute difference in society. Today, uh, women are free to get college degrees, graduate degrees, doctor's degrees. Uh, Career fields are wide open. Uh, regardless of gender, station in life, what family you come from. Uh, You don't need to be married to own a home, to have a career, to, to make a living today. And so we don't understand what it would have been like to face widowhood in the ancient world. In most societies, women could not hold property. And that meant if your husband passed away, you lost your home your property. But even if you kept it, it was a tough and laborious reality to maintain the farm, to work the fields. And a day without tractors and machinery. The simple reality was that in most societies, there was no safety net. And so being a widow was often a death sentence in the ancient world. Israel, though, was different. Into the fabric of Israel's life, God had sown all sorts of provisions for widows and their children, the orphans. First, if a widow was, um, or if a woman was widowed with no children, it was the responsibility of the deceased, the brother of the deceased, to marry the widow and to provide for her. And also by by providing children for her, she'd be able to keep that property. For those who remained widows, there were other provisions. You probably are are well aware that farmers, when they went through and harvested their fields, weren't allowed to collect all everything that fell to the ground. God said that was for the widows and the orphans. Leave that and let them come in and it was called gleaning and come and grab the leftovers to live on. 
These weren't gentle suggestions. This was the law of the land. Care for the widows and the orphans in Israel was enshrined in God's law. Let me state it this way. It was illegal for the Israelites to neglect widows and orphans. Israel was completely unique and different in the ancient world. Widows and orphans were also provided for in another way. You might be aware that that, uh, once a year, the Israelites were required to bring a tenth of their income, the tithe, and offer it to God. Now, typically, uh, this was an agricultural society, so it was different than us. They weren't; uh, th- their livelihood wasn't typically measured in dollars and bank accounts, and so most of their offering was brought in the form of uh, flocks, animals, sheep, uh, oxen, and, and, and whatnot, but also in grain that they harvested from their fields. The tithe was God's portion. It belonged to him. But here's the deal. We have a God who never hungers. He's in no need of food. So what does God do with his portion? He gave clear instructions. It was to be given to the priests who had no land to farm. Remember, the priests were given no inheritance in the land. They had no property to farm. And then God says it is to be used to feed the widows and the orphans and the foreigners, the Gentiles who were dwelling in the land. When Psalm 68 says that God is the father of the fatherless and the protector of the widows, this is what it means. He took their care seriously. He gave his portion to their care. He made sure they were provided for. He required this of Israel. In fact, years later, when when he judged Israel for their disobedience and he drove them into exile in Assyria and Babylon, you might remember that one of his main reasons given was, you have not cared for the afflicted as I commanded you to. And that brought shame upon the name of God. Because his people looked no different than the surrounding nations. They cared only for the rich, the powerful, the healthy, the strong. And that's not who God is. And they were not reflecting God to the world. In fact, what we find in Psalm 68 is more than a description of what God does. It's a description of who he is. You could say this is his name, and uh, you might know that this is one of my favorite names for God. Father of the fatherless and protector of the widow. It's a long name, but it's a great name. This is how our God wishes to define himself and reveal himself to us. This is how he wants to be known. You you could put it this way. He can't not care for widows and orphans because that would be to deny himself. He's no lover of the rich, 
the powerful, the self-sufficient, the movers, the shakers. Instead, the Bible teaches us that God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in this world to shame the strong. He teaches us to take comfort in confessing that when we are weak, he is strong. The Bible teaches us that we have this treasure of redemption in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. God delights in showing his power and his love to the weak. He's not in need of our help or our abilities. He's not looking for a bunch of strong and capable heroes who can save the world. He is the Savior and the Rescuer. We are the saved and the rescued. He's not looking for help. He's looking for the hurting, the humble, and the repentant. Look at what Psalm 68 says. Verse 1, those who hate God will be scattered. Verse 2, they will perish like wax before a flame. Verse 6, they will dwell in a parched land. Verse 12, even kings will flee before God. But what does it say about his people? Verse 3, the righteous will be jubilant with joy. Verse 6, they will be given a new home and made prosperous. Verse 12, they will divide the spoil of God's enemies though they never saw a day of battle. The distinction in our passage is, is not between those who can and those who can't. The difference is not between the rich and the poor. The only difference that matters is whether you are God's friend or his enemy. The only difference that matters is your relationship to God. So what does it mean to be a friend of God? It's not like human friendships. Eh, We have mutual interests. There's give and take. To be a friend of God is to rightly understand and recognize who he is and who you are and to delight in that distinction. It means recognizing that you have nothing to offer him but honesty. He's in no need of anything you have. Worse yet, you have rejected him, rebelled against him. You have sought to reverse those roles. You have demanded that he bow and serve you. You have judged him for not living up to your expectations. You have pretended that he owes you something and you have found fault with him for failing to deliver on that. You have behaved as if reality were the exact opposite of what it really is. Simply put, you have behaved like his enemy. And so to be his friend means coming and laying all of that on the table. Means confessing that you do not deserve one ounce of kindness from him. And admitting that you have no bargaining chips. That you are absolutely destitute and in need 
In other words, it means realizing and admitting that in God's eyes, you are no different than a widow or an orphan. And in a sense, that's the message of our passage this morning. This psalm is about God delivering Israel out of slavery in Egypt and bringing them up through the wilderness into the promised land. It's a story that took decades, but it's, it's told in this epic poem, this song of March, about bondage and deliverance and triumph. And we're going to focus more on that march next week. But what I want to drill down on this week, right now, is how God describes all of Israel as he brings them out of slavery in Egypt. Because that's what he's talking about in verse 6 when he says that he settles the solitary in a home, leading prisoners out of captivity, but the rebellious leaving in the wilderness to die. He brought Israel out of, out of a place of abandonment and he gave her a home in a land flowing with milk and honey. But the rebellious Egyptians, he, he let die in the wilderness. Verse 6, when he talks about this, is really just explaining what it means in verse 5 when he says that he is the father of the fatherless and the protector of the widow. God identified Israel destitute and dying in Egypt without a home as widows and orphans. As a nation, that was their reality. They had no provision, no protector, no home. This was their corporate identity. They were all widows and orphans. But that's okay. In fact, it was their salvation. Had they been powerful, had they been rich, had they been self-sufficient, they would have had no hope Had they been proud and confident, they would have been no different than the Egyptians. But as widows and orphans? Well, is God not the father of the fatherless and the protector of the widow? Is it not the widow and the orphan that God rescues and establishes? This is what Psalm 68 is all about. It's because they were widows and orphans in in Egypt that God came and rescued them because that's who he is. Oh, but what about you? Here's a psalm written thousands of years ago about Israelites being pulled out of Egypt. How does this psalm relate to you? The Bible teaches us to read the story of the Exodus as our story, as, as a description of every person's inherent spiritual reality in a fallen world. We are all slaves to sin as Israel was slaves in Egypt. Destitute and dying in our sin, we are all widows and orphans. No provision, no protector, no place to call home. Widows, orphans. And this is one of the hardest things for us as Christians to learn. 
It's one of those walking by faith, not by sight things. We have homes, spouses, parents. And we can only see according to that reality. And when that happens, we think that that God functions the way the world functions. We think that he He wants us to be perfect and strong and worthy in no need of grace or forgiveness. So we see our failures and we think that they are our undoing when we fail our wives, our husbands, our children, our bosses, our friends, our congregation, or our God. It's then that we think we've messed everything up. That everyone's going to leave us and abandon us. That we've ruined everything beyond repair. So what do we do? We try to be perfect. Or at least appear perfect. And then we just end up ping-ponging back and forth between arrogance when we think we're succeeding and despair when we aren't. But what if God said, it's okay to be weak? What if God said, it's okay to be needy? What if he said, it's okay to be poor? What if God said, I only work with failures? What if he said, it's, it's not how good you are, but how good he is that mattered? What if he didn't love the rich and the powerful and the self-sufficient? What if he said, it is better to be an orphan than a prince, better to be a widow than a king? Well, then confessing your weakness would become your salvation. If you're proud and you're confident, you're no different than the Egyptians. But as widows and orphans? Well, is God not the father of the fatherless and the protector of the widow? Is not the widow and the orphan the very object of God's love, the ones he rescues and establishes? Beloved, Psalm 68 is for you. Embrace your widowhood. It's your salvation. I hope that's encouraging. I hope it's liberating. But I think I think it could be dangerous and unwise if we just ended there. Because I think there are a couple of potential misunderstandings that we want to guard against. The first is to think that because the Bible calls us to see ourselves as widows and orphans, that we're not required to care for those who are actually widows and orphans among us. It's the opposite of what it means. Jesus says you will always have the poor among you. God has always done both. He's always taught his people to identify as widows and orphans and to care for those who have lost their husbands or fathers.
And I think we struggle sometimes to identify who are truly widows and orphans. We, we get that Sylvia is. We buried Harvey. But in our day, women and children are orphaned less by death and more often by simple, plain, sinful selfishness. This week, this week, since the last time we were gathered in worship, I heard of two women whose husband walked out on them. One was pregnant and one had just adopted in the last couple years a child. These women, these children were widowed and orphaned not by tragic death, but just sinful selfishness. God calls our hearts to break for these. He calls us to care for them. This is why one of the first things the church did after the resurrection was appoint deacons to watch over and care for the widows and the orphans. Anything less would have been an assault on the honor of God who is the father of the fatherless and the protector of the widow. Now another potential misunderstanding would be to think that God is calling us to rescue the poor. (laughs) That we are the rich, the saviors of the poor, that we are the haves rescuing the have-nots, riding in on our white stallions. We are all widows. We are all orphans. We are all needy, but that doesn't mean we have nothing to offer. Before the sermon, we read a few verses from Mark 12. When the God of Psalm 68 took on flesh and blood and entered into this world and walked among us, one day he came to the temple and he sat down with his disciples opposite the treasury and just watched. He sat with his disciples as many rich people came in and dropped large sums of money, you could hear it falling. And then a poor widow came, probably invisible to most there, and she dropped in a mite, the equivalent to a penny. And that's when Jesus smiled. And do you remember his response? He rejoiced because where the others contributed out of their abundance, she contributed out of her poverty. And that's what the Lord calls you to do. You love and you serve one another not out of abundance, but out of a shared poverty. Your need is not an impediment to serving others, it is the foundation of serving others. If you can't serve out of a shared sense of need and weakness, you have nothing to offer. Understanding that will not hinder your ability to serve others. It will strengthen it. It will slay all condescension and pride. It will be a point of unity rather than division. If you give not as one who is wealthy, but as a fellow beggar, if you visit the widow as a fellow widow, 
if you can see yourself in the face of an orphan, then God smiles. Because you come not as a rebellious enemy, but as a humble and repentant friend of God. And what is that but a reflection of how he rescued us? Jesus did not come in power. He did not come swinging a sword. He came in weakness and humility. He saved us by laying down his life, not by being exalted. In order to save us, he who was rich became poor. The son was abandoned by the father. And when you serve out of weakness, not out of strength, you are identifying with the cross of Christ. You are walking by faith, not by sight. The table that is set before us brings all of these truths home. The church in Corinth was struggling to walk by faith, not by sight. They thought that God judged as man judges. And so when they gathered together in worship, their struggles became visible in the Lord's Supper. The rich went first and ate and drank, often until they were intoxicated and full. And then the poor would go last if there was anything left. And Paul said they were eating and drinking judgment unto themselves. Because in God's judgment, there is no rich or poor. There are no haves or have-nots. There is only proud and humble. There is only rebellious and repentant. There is only enemy or friend. Since the beginning, God has shared his table, his portion, with only four groups of people. The priests, the foreigners, the widows, and the orphans. And what those four had in common was that they had no inheritance in this world. By the world's standards, they were the poor. And so God said he would be their inheritance. And our God never changes. He invites to the table today those who are widows and orphans, those who acknowledge that they are poor and needy. I'm going to stop there. Those four things are what God says. We are all priests. We are strangers and aliens in this world. We are widows and orphans. We have no lasting inheritance. We seek the things above. Do you get it? God invites to this table the poor, the downcast, the trodden, the broken, those who have no inheritance in this world, but for whom God is their inheritance. And so if you are a widow and an orphan, God says, come and eat. I have prepared a table for you. I have set a place for you at my table. I am the father of the fatherless and the protector of the widow. So I'd like to ask the elders to come forward that we might receive and eat from the king's table this morning. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we delight that we can call you that. 
For we were orphans wandering the streets of this world, begging for scraps, and you have called us your children. You've invited us to dwell in your house, to dine at your table, to be called children of God. And you've united yourself to us as a husband takes a wife. You've removed our shame and our destitution. You have said that the two shall become one. What is mine is yours. Help us to embrace our poverty and not fear it. Help us to minister out of our weakness as fellow beggars, fellow widows, fellow orphans. Teach us to see with eyes of compassion, not pity. And in this, use us in mighty ways. All of this we ask through Jesus, who delights in the gifts of widows. Amen.